At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? In March of 2021, Gallup Research, which does studies and polls on our society and culture, released a significant finding. For the first time in the history of the United States, Gallup found that the majority of Americans do not belong to a house of worship. In the article entitled, U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time, Gallup reported that only 49% of American adults are members of a local house of worship. Now, this was pretty significant. Gallup has actually been tracking this information since 1937. And for about 60 years of the amount of time that Gallup had been tracking participation and engagement with local houses of worship, the number in our society hung around 70%. Until about two decades ago, there started to be a dramatic decline across our society and culture. Until just a little over a year ago, almost two years ago now, the shift moved to be that those who engage in the church and houses of worship are no longer the majority. That shift is actually even more dramatic when you look at the data for younger generations. For instance, only 36% of the millennial generation, which would be my generation, engage a local church at all. If you look at the effect that took place during and kind of after the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, we see that this shift was actually increased. In fact, if you look at our church and almost all churches across our society, most of them not nearly lost a third of their people. Not because they went to other churches, because they just no longer went to church anymore. And yet, if you look at other statistics on spirituality and the pursuit of spiritual practice in our society, what we actually see is that those are actually on the rise, especially among younger generations. And for some reason then in our culture, there's become a disconnect where we desire spiritual things and spiritual growth and spiritual pursuit, but we no longer see the local church as an integral part of that pursuit. In fact, it seems that for a large majority of people in our society, the question they are asking about the church is, why bother? Why bother? In a world where I can get instantly whatever I need, whatever spiritual feeding I need, whatever I want to engage, and things that are all tailored to me, why bother with what to many seems like an archaic institution full of all sorts of troubles and hurts and problems and issues? Maybe you've asked that question at one point. Why bother with the church? Or maybe you know somebody who does. I know I've wrestled with it. I know I've had moments where I've thought, man, is this worth it? All this that we try to go after? Like, can't I just sleep in on a Sunday and, you know, maybe get a good workout in? 
Like, why bother with all of this? And I'm a pastor, for crying out loud. So if I feel that at times, right, I can only imagine what others feel. And yet, throughout my life, I've been drawn back time and time again to the beauty and the power and the necessity of the local church. And so for the next several weeks, I kind of want to help us as a community see that beauty and purpose and design. To ask that question, why bother with the church? And I think to find an answer that will help all of us maybe lean in a little bit more to this thing we call church and see the blessing and benefits and necessity it has for our lives. And so we're launching this morning into this series called Church, Why Bother? Where we're going to be spending really the next eight weeks studying through the book of First Timothy. And I think First Timothy is an important book, as you're going to see as we unpack some things this morning, for helping us on this journey of understanding why the church matters. And so this morning, we're just going to look at a few verses to kind of set up the book a bit, but also to kind of help us see the nature of the church. Because I think one of the things, among many, there's lots of reasons, right? It's multifaceted, but I think one of the things that has probably led to the decline of church participation and commitment is in some ways a failure to understand what the very nature of the church is. For many people, if you just ask them, what's the church? You'd probably get a lot of different answers. It's that building on Middle Belt that I drive by sometimes. Isn't that a church? Or maybe it's a service that I attend. That's a church. A church is a place for community. The church is a place that I go to when I need something that does some good things in the world. Or the church isn't vital at all. Maybe people think of it as a social club, like, you know, the Moose Lodge or whatever that is. How might you answer that question? Like, what is the church. If somebody asked you, what's the church? What, what would your answer be? Because if we're going to understand why it matters, it's probably the good place for us to start is, well, what is it that we're actually talking about? What, what is this thing that we call the church? As we, we're going to see, Paul, the author of the letter that we're going to be studying in 1 Timothy, has a very specific idea of what the church is. And that's kind of where I want to begin our journey this morning. But in order for us to get there, we kind of got to start a little bit with the context of the letter. So I want to go all the way back to the very beginning of 1 Timothy and kind of unpack a few key things so you can understand the context. And then we're going to lean into that question, what is the church? So 1 Timothy begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So the letter begins with a pretty standard greeting for first century letters. 
It's likely that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy somewhere around 60 in the 60s AD. And if you had written a letter then, you would have started most letters the way Paul did, which is you would begin that letter by stating who you were. You would then state who you were writing the letter to, and then you would usually give some sort of formula greeting, right? In our world, you might address an envelope. They didn't have envelopes then. They had scrolls. And so the way you began that scroll was, this is who's writing. This is who I'm writing to. Here's my greeting. And Paul begins that way, but in doing so, he gives us really kind of the context and key parts of who's involved in this letter and the context that we're going to be exploring. So it begins with Paul, and he notes he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He designates himself as an apostle. Now, this word apostle is not a word we often use around here, and oftentimes it's got kind of wrapped up in churchy language. In Paul's day, an apostle was just somebody who was sent or commissioned by an entity to someone else, right? They were often a commissioned person. So when Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's noting that he's been commissioned or sent by Jesus for specific purposes and reasons. Now, in the New Testament, what we see is there's really two types of apostles. There's what I like to call big A or capital A apostles, Capital A apostles are those who are sent, specifically commissioned by Jesus himself. Then there's little a apostles. Apostles are those who are commissioned by a church or maybe another apostle. Again, the word just means sent one. The word that we often use in our context that means kind of the same thing or same entity is missionary, which finds its root in the Latin to send. It's the same idea. It's somebody who's sent by another. Now, Paul, though, notes which one he is. Paul is a big A, capital apostle, specifically called by Christ. In fact, he reinforces that by saying, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul notes from the very beginning of the letter that this call of apostleship ultimately came, not just from God, but actually from Jesus, and that he's been commanded for the work that he's been called to in helping and overseeing the churches. We'll unpack that more in a moment. But I think from the very get-go, Paul actually gives us a key principle of church leadership, which is that all church leadership, even the big A, capital apostles, are derived leadership. Their leadership comes ultimately under the call and command of God. Leaders in the church are not self-appointed, they're spiritually appointed and called by God, which means that their ultimately authority is rooted to him and their leadership leads back and connects to him. And Paul begins that way and then he reminds them, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. This is who's writing the letter, Paul, the one who traveled around establishing churches, the apostle of Christ Jesus. He writes the letter to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So the letter is a addressed to Timothy, who Paul sees as his spiritual son. Paul met Timothy along one of his missionary journeys. Timothy was raised by his mother and grandmother, who spent significant time building him up in the faith. Paul met him when he was really young and invited him essentially to be his apprentice. And so Timothy joined Paul on a number of his missionary journeys and entities, and Paul trained him in pastoral ministry. 
But Paul had a certain affinity, a certain affection for Timothy as a spiritual son. He had spent a lot of time and energy pouring his life into him. And as he writes this letter, he reminds them of him. So in one sense, this letter is addressed to Timothy. Timothy's young at this point. He's a pastor. He's likely in his 30s. What we can tell from the letters written to Timothy is he's temperamentally shy He needs some decent encouragement. He struggles sometimes with self-confidence. Paul often reassures him in his letters. Note the familial language that Paul begins with in the letter. But Paul also has a secondary audience in mind. Paul is writing to Timothy, but he's also writing to the church that Timothy is overseeing. Where is that church? Well, Paul says in verse 3, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Paul and Timothy had come to Ephesus. Paul actually spent a decent amount of time of Ephesus, and they had established a church there. Paul continued on in his missionary journey, but had left Timothy in Ephesus to continue pastoring the churches. Paul now writes back to Timothy to encourage him in his pastoral ministry. So in one sense, this is one pastor writing to another pastor to encourage him in his ministry of leading the church. But while the letter's meant for Timothy, it's also meant for the larger Ephesian church as well. So Paul has two lenses Right? That's why he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. You wouldn't have to affirm the genuineness of his spiritual sonship to Timothy. Timothy already knew he was Paul's spiritual son. He had been discipled in for years. So why is Paul going the extra length to affirm the genuineness of his sonship? Well, he's trying to affirm Timothy in his role as pastor over the church in Ephesus. You actually see this at the very end of the letter. Paul ends the letter by saying grace to you. But grace is in the plural. So he's not writing a letter just to one person. He's writing a letter to one person that's also meant for everybody else. And this is why the letter is actually really helpful because Paul's writing to a pastor, but also to a church to encourage them to be the sort of church that they need to be. So Timothy is pastoring this church in Ephesus. And Ephesus actually plays a very important context in the letter. So let me just help you set a little bit of the context of Ephesus. Ephesus at the time was the third largest city in the world. It was right on the edge of what we now know as modern Turkey. They would have called it Asia back then. So it was a major city and travel through. If you were to move from Rome, which was the center of the empire, through Greece into the eastern part of the known world at the time, you would have likely gone through Ephesus. It was a major city for transport and especially for port. And so Ephesus would have been similar to any of our kind of major, large coastal cities that we have today. Think of New York, think LA, think San Francisco, Miami, those kind of major port cities Ephesus would have been. And this is where Timothy is pastoring. And like any major city, Ephesus is kind of the central entity for that area of the Roman Empire. All right? It's it's a central economic center. I got the opportunity several years ago on a Bible tour to actually visit Ephesus, and it was incredible to see, and it gave me a lot of context for the letter. One of the things you note is how much of a role it played in the, economic, uh, the economy of that region. This is the main thoroughfare that would have gone from the port up into the city. You can see its width at that time, even for an ancient city. And so there was an economic hub, substantially influential in the economy of the area. Ephesus was also a significant center for learning. This is one of the ancient artifacts of Ephesus. Is This is the facade of their library. People would have traveled. They would have gathered information and collected. People would have been trained. 
much like our modern cities. There were universities and trainings that would have happened there. Ephesus was a major center for the arts. In fact, you can see in there, my clicker doesn't like me. Francis, can you go to the next slide? You can see by the theater that was there. This was the Roman theater in Ephesus. That's a pretty decent-sized theater, right? If you ever read Acts where Paul's in Ephesus and they have a riot and they rush into the theater and they all chant uh, Ephesus, the, uh, Artemis, the goddess of Ephesus, right? This is that place that they would have gone. It's, it's incredible. So all that to say, what we see is it's, it's an economic center. It's a center of art. It's a center of industry, learning. It's also a religious center. So at the heart of the thing is a giant temple. It no longer stands today. It's been destroyed, but was a giant temple to the goddess Artemis, who was the Roman goddess of fertility. And so people would have traveled all over the world to worship at this temple, hoping that Artemis would bless them with fertility in their lives. So we can see this kind of, I want to help you see the context, right? This is a highly cosmopolitan city that's large and influential. And Timothy's trying to pastor a church and a church that's really struggling in that context. As you can see, Paul's writing to him to remain there because there's certain people that are challenging the church. And so Paul wants to encourage Timothy in his work as a pastor and encourage this church and what it means to be the church in this city. And so there's lots in this letter that helps us and that we're going to explore. But what I want for a moment today is just to look at what the church is. As Paul writes this letter to this pastor in this church, what is he actually writing? What does he think the church is? And to answer that, we have to go to the heart of the letter, which is, a, which is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. This in some ways is Paul's thesis statement right in the middle. And he kind of gives the reason for why he's writing the letter. And as he gives the reason, he then gives us the vision of what he believes the church is and why the church matters. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. So there's his desire. My hope is actually to come back to Ephesus to help you, Timothy. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul's saying, I'm hoping to come to you, but there's a decent chance I'm going to be delayed. So I'm writing this letter so that if I am, you might know how you're actually supposed to live and be the church and how you're supposed to lead them as their pastor. So he's giving them instructions. But as he gives his purpose for why he's writing, he then connects that back to his vision for the church. And he makes three pivotal statements on what the church is that I think help us answer the question. The first one he says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God. The first thing is Paul sees the church as God's spiritual family. He sees the church as God's spiritual family. The household in the Roman Empire was the center of life. The oikos is the word for household. And it had a much more robust understanding than our modern households, right? This was, often the household was the center of business for the family. It involved not just parents, but often grandparents, brothers, sisters, those that worked in the home, servants, slaves in those days. 
right? It, it was a much more robust, and it was the center. You were defined by your household and your family in terms often of your economic status, in terms of your job and work, in terms of what you did. There was not quite the social mobility that we have today. The house was everything. Well, Paul reminds them that the church is actually the house of God. It's God's spiritual family. So he's reprioritizing and even reminding them that what defines their identity, what defines their reality, is that they are now part of God's family. This is Paul's primary understanding of the church. I mean, this letter and Paul's letters are laced with familial language. He calls Timothy his true son. He refers to God as his father. He gives them instructions here to Timothy to treat older men as mother, or as fathers and older women as mothers, younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters. He laces the letter with familiar language because his primary understanding of the church is that this is God's household and this is God's family. That's who we are. It's a people that have been brought together by God in Jesus who now are his single family. That's what the church is for Paul. It's a spiritual family, a family made up of people from different backgrounds and ethnicities, from different socioeconomic statuses from all over, but who have one thing in common. In Christ Jesus, they've been brought into relationship with God as their father, and they are now his sons and daughters. That's their primary identity. We're meant to be a family, and family is meant to be a beautiful thing in all of its strength. Many of us don't always, unfortunately, get to experience that. Some of our families are good, some are bad. All of them have broken pieces and parts. But the ideal of the family is meant to be that place of identity, of togetherness, the place you're known and loved and cared for. And what Paul's vision for the church is to say, we're meant to be God's family, the place where we experience the love of God and the love of one another, the one where our identity is formed and shaped. So Paul writes to them to encourage in how they live because what he primarily sees them as are brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the bummers over the holidays was that we didn't get to celebrate Christmas together as a family in our home. We did down to my wife's parents. And we all lamented that because there's a certain joy that we have in being together as a family. And my family's multifaceted. I've got bio kids, I've got adopted kids, I've got grandkids, I've got nephews, i got like a whole slew of them around. But one of the joys was when all those pieces, parts get to be together because there's a certain joy and love that exists in family. And what Paul wants to remind us is that's what the church is, or at least that's what it's meant to be. That place that there's a joy of being together, of finding brothers and sisters united in Christ, of finding love and identity and support and care of saying, oh yeah, that's where I belong because I belong to God, because he's my father, and these are my brothers and sisters. So Paul sees the church as a spiritual family. The second thing that Paul sees is that the church is the assembly of God's people. So he says this, look again at the verse, how one ought to behave in the household of God. Here's the second phrase, which is the church of the living God. Now, the word Paul uses there for church is the word ekklesia in the Greek. It means assembly or congregation or gathering. In everyday language, it was often used of political gatherings or groups that would gather together in affinity and certain elements. When they would bring the city maybe together for a vote, you could call it an ekklesia or a gathering or congregation or assembly. 
Biblically, the word is first used, that phrase ekklesia in the Old Testament of the assembly of God's people before Mount Sinai in his presence. And that's the imagery and language that Paul draws on as he describes the church now. As in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were gathered in God's presence. They were his congregation or his assembly. What Paul now reminds Timothy is this small local gathering that happens in Ephesus. They are now an assembly of the living God. They are the place now where God's presence dwells. Because of the work of Christ, because of what he has fulfilled and instituted in his people, that they are now an assembly, a congregation, a gathered people of the living God. And Paul often contrasts living God with the dead idols that were found in their culture to remind them, our God is alive. He is living and active and at work. And so what Paul wants to remind them is, not only is the church a spiritual family, the church is an assembly of God's people where God is alive and present. I wonder if if that's how we think of church. Like when you woke up this morning and you knew that you were going to come here, did you have the sense to say, I am going to the people of God where the living God of the universe who created everything and is redeeming all things in Christ Jesus will be present because his people will be assembled before him? Is is that how you thought of church? Because that's how Paul views it. Like what we're happening right now, this assembly of people is a assembly of those who are before the living God and he's present by his spirit here. I mean, I think if we thought of that, it might change a little bit of our desire to be at church. Like if I could know, oh, where's the place God's gonna be present today? Where's the place God's gonna show up to? Where's the place God's committed to being time and time again? And I realize, oh, it's when his people are assembled, I think I'd prioritize the assembly a little bit more. I think I'd be like, man, that's where I wanna be because that's where God's gonna be. See, I think we've forgotten that. I think church becomes take it or leave it. It fits in. Average church attendance in America is once a month. Once a month. That's committed. That's not flaky. That's committed members of churches once a month. And there's part of me that just wonders, have we forgot? Like, ah, maybe I'll engage God, maybe not. Paul's trying to remember, no, you're an assembly of the living God. You're the gathering congregation where God is present and alive and active. Man, that's a place I want to be. That's a place that matters. And then finally, Paul gives his third phrase, that we're a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's given him the image, right? You're a spiritual family. Here's image one. Here's second. You're the gathered congregation of the living God. Just like the people were gathered at Sinai before the presence of God, the local church is gathered before God. Here's the third one. You're a temple. This is the imagery you use. A temple of the truth of Jesus. So Paul's drawing on very specific architectural language that have been used in those days. He uses these two key words. The buttress, which is really the word for foundation. We don't use buttress anymore. It can mean foundation or the kind of key supporting structure of a building. So in those days, temples were prevalent. And remember, Ephesus, there's a massive temple to the goddess Artemis. It's one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's huge. And it's built on a buttress, a foundation, a solid foundation. And so immediately when they hear that word, they think temple, they think foundation. And Paul says it's built, the church is the buttress or the foundation of truth. You can see in this picture, this isn't 
a picture of Artemis Temple. It's no longer there, but one that would have been a little bit smaller and similar a little bit further away in a different area of Turkey now. And you can see the foundation. But he also says we're a pillar, right? The pillar upholds the temple. It raises it high so that everyone can see. And so this is the imagery then that Paul now is bringing to say, this is what the church is for the truth. They're the foundation and the pillar. Now, Paul doesn't just mean abstract truth, right? That's not his point. His point is revealed truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of who he is as Savior and Lord, that the church now is the built on that foundation and the one to display that to the world around it. That's why Paul goes on in verse 16 to clarify that idea of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Many people believe this was an early creed or hymn of the church, a way in which they sought to summarize the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus in succinct key phrases that they could remember. And what we see in this creed or hymn is that it points us both to the foundation of Christ and the raising of Christ and his gospel high among the nations. The first three stanzas point to the truth of Jesus' ministry, right? That he was manifested in the flesh, points to his incarnation. Jesus, the divine son of God, became human being, the God-man for the purposes of salvation, Vindicated by the Spirit. Paul uses this language elsewhere in Romans 1, talking about vindication in the Spirit to refer to the resurrection. To the point that Jesus, who died for our sins, our perfect sacrifice, ultimately was vindicated and raised from the dead. And then he was seen by angels. Again, another phrase now to the ascension of Christ, where he was born witness by angels to his ascension to the throne. So Paul, in these three phrases, is reminding them of Christ's work. Here's the truth. Here's the revealing of who he is as Savior and Lord. But not only that, here's the mission out of that. That he's proclaimed among the nations. That the gospel goes forth to all people to invite them to trust in Christ and be part of God's family and experience his kingdom. That he's believed on in the world. As it's proclaimed, he's received through faith and trusted in. And then he's taken up in glory. A reference to the fullness of his coming kingdom that will be established upon his return. And so you can see that when Paul talks about us being the pillar and, or I'm sorry, the foundation and pillar of truth, what he's trying to help them see is the truth of Jesus, both the foundation of what he's done and the mission of proclaiming the good news of the gospel among the world, that's your purpose. That's who you are. You're meant to be a temple, a place to display the truth of Jesus by being built on the foundation that is Jesus. That's the purpose of any great building. I mean, go downtown right now as they're building the new Hudson Tower. I mean, they are laying the foundation on that sucker for like ever. I'm like, when are you guys going to start building? I think they finally started building something above the ground. It's like been amazing. But the foundation matters. And Paul wants to remind you, the church is built on the foundation of Christ. It's rooted deep in what he has done. It's not built on itself. It's built on Jesus, but it's also meant to be built high. It's meant to display the glory of Christ by being God's people so the world might know him and hear his good news of his death and resurrection and salvation for all people and his lordship over all things. I mean, I think the plan is to build the Hudson high enough that you can see it, 
And that's Paul's point of the church. You're meant to not just have a foundation, but to build built high. So when people look at this community, they're like, man, there's something there. That's God's people. And so Paul, through these images, spiritual family, right, assembled before the living God and the temple of God is trying to help us see this is who you are. This is why I'm going to spend five chapters reminding you of how you're called to live because this is what you are and who you are as the church. If I was going to give you a summary of what I think Paul points us towards in these passages, if we're just going to begin, we're going to spend some weeks unpacking this book, but if we're just going to start with what is the church, here I think is Paul's clearest answer. The church is God's people, a spiritual family that upholds the truth and spreads the gospel. The church is God's People. I mean, that's his whole point, right? You're the household of God, the assembly of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth of God, right? Like, I mean, his whole point is to help you see the church is God's people. It's God's entity meant to be a spiritual family who lives out the truth and brings the gospel to the nations. And when you recognize that, when you recognize that, that's why the church matters, If you want the motivation to say, why should I care about the church? And I know some of you have been hurt by the church. I know some of you have bad experiences, right? Don't don't let the negative experience distract you from the ideal that God has for his people because there's healing available in Christ and there's power available for Christ for the hurts that you've experienced. Go back and root yourself in what the Bible gives you as the vision for the church, not what somebody twisted or abused you in your experience of it. And if you want the motivation for why the church matters, you only have to go four words into the sentence. The church is God's. And if God matters, then the church matters. Because we're his. Because we're his. That's the motivation for the church. To say, if that's where God is, if that's where God works, If that's what God is committed to, man, then I want to be committed to that. I want to be in on that. I want to experience God there because this is where he's promised to be among his people. The local gathering of his people where we seek to be spiritual family, where we seek to be an assembled congregation week in and week out in worship before him to see the living God work among us to be the sort of people who are built on the truth of Christ and proclaim the good news of the truth of Christ to the watching world. We're God's people, and that's why we matter. You see, I heard, as I grew up and wrestled with church, I've heard time and time again, people use phrases like, man, I love Jesus, but I don't really like the church. And that always breaks my heart. I get it, I know there's hurt there, so I'm not trying trying to... be overly prophetic to somebody who's experienced hurt. But, but what you have to realize is God loves his church. Like he loves it so much that he gave up his son to die to save his people. So you can't love God and not at some point love his people because he loves his people and we're his. And that's why the church matters. Because we're the place on the earth in which God has promised to dwell until Jesus returns. You see, we find our motivation for church not by looking 
to ourselves or one another. We find the motivation to be committed to church when we look to God and what he has done in Christ Jesus. And when we see that and see the commitment God has to his people, then we say, man, I'm in on that. I'm in on that. Because that's where God's present. I remember the first time this clicked for me. I'll, I'll close with this. I remember the first time this really clicked for me. Just about the nature of God's commitment to his people and his church and what that looks like. So when you go to Ephesus, they um, have excavated a bunch of homes that are on a hillside, right kind of in the down central area of the city, actually kind of almost right by that library I showed you earlier. And they have these homes kind of excavated under this big canopy in the city. And so you go in and you get to walk along these kind of catwalks that are all around um, and kind of see these different homes. And so you, you can kind of see, I have a picture up there, kind of see how they're laid out. And you get to kind of see some elements and you can kind of visualize and imagine some of these. I mean, these are like the early downtown posh apartments, right? Like before, like first century, like that's where you want to be. And I remember one time I was standing up on one of the catwalks when we were down looking at it. And I just looked down at one of the rooms. Francis, you can go to the next slide. And it, like, for whatever reason, it just clicked in my brain. Like, oh, that, that's where the church would have been. Like, the, the church in the first century didn't have institutions and massive buildings and societal influence. They weren't the majority, they were the minority. Small groups of people gathered in homes, in ancient living rooms, or around ancient dining tables, who were just passionately pursuing the way of Jesus, who were trying to be spiritual family. I mean, they were literally, Acts tells us, selling things to take care of one another who were so committed to the assembly of gathering together before God in worship that they would risk their lives to get together to share a meal, to do what we're about to do in taking communion. And they were so firmly committed to the truth of Christ. Not only were they willing to die on his behalf, but they literally turned the world upside down in the Roman Empire in several hundred years because they were so committed to bringing the truth of the gospel to the world. And I just realized, like, and the church is just a people committed to God who God's promised to be present among. And he is present. If there's anything over the witness of 2,000 years of church history, God is present among his people. And if that's where God is, then that's where I want to be. Because he's the motivation. And I pray he's your motivation too. And so my invitation to you this morning as we lean into this letter, there's still lots to learn, but let your starting point be to just be like, I want to be where God is. And if God's promised to be among his people, then that's where I want to be too. And let's lean in and learn together what that looks like. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.